Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio. As part of our Open Future season, we're asking, how can the West's armies prepare for future warfare? After this week's NATO summit and a bracing challenge from the American president to NATO allies to spend more on defence, Donald Trump was in Britain, watching a demonstration of the UK's military capabilities. After that, he's off to meet Russia's leader, Vladimir Putin, and there's some disquiet about how any deal he does there might impact on NATO's ability to fulfil the West's security guarantees. Warfare around most of the world is thankfully sporadic, but it's also becoming less predictable. A major shift is that it's increasingly fought in urban environments. How can today's armies prepare for that? In this show, I was given exclusive access to Urban Bear. It's a joint meeting of the most senior British and German military, and it includes a mock city to train up soldiers for a new and full battle rattle of urban warfare. So I went up into an old Second World War flak tower and deep down into a Nazi bunker to get a sense of how cities were defended in World War II. They were built from reinforced concrete, just bashing at it there, a good two to two and a half metres thick to withstand aerial bombardment. We learn how perilous battles in cities can be. That was a hot, bloody summer in a city and I learned just how brutal and tough and difficult urban warfighting is. And how German and British armies are training together in a simulated city. This is not a typical German, this is not a typical European, this is not a typical third world village. It has a bit of everything. And you can transfer this into any scenario anywhere in the world. And is the enemy they're preparing for Russia? Russia is now in a position to assert itself in a way that it hadn't been prior to 2008. Definitely their prominence is rising and that's what they're trying to do is be a world player. in the future is much more likely to be fought in urban environments. I joined a selection of the top brass from the UK, including airborne units, SAS and top ranks of officers experienced in conflict and their German counterparts. It's all part of a push to get better value out of bilateral dealings between the two armies as NATO faces daunting new challenges. On April 4th, 1949, this union of 12 nations became known as the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or more simply, NATO. They were sworn to stand together against aggression. An attack against one would be an attack against all. I am Lieutenant General Patrick Sanders, and I command the field army. And we're here in Berlin to study the lessons of history from Berlin in 1945 and to extract from that how 
we can better adapt and prepare the British Army for fighting in cities, urban operations. He was in Berlin as a young platoon commander and guarded Rudolf Hess, the last living imprisoned war criminal of World War II. General Sanders explained why cities will be key battlegrounds in the future. I don't think you'll find an army in the world that wants to fight in cities, but it is an unfortunate necessity for a variety of reasons. I mean, not least because... If you fast forward to 2050, about 60% of the world's population will live in cities. And those cities probably won't have the resources to support that level of population. So it becomes a breeding ground for conflict, for violence, for young men who are dispossessed and disenfranchised. So it provides an environment that's sort of ripe for conflict. And if you think about state-on-state warfare then very often cities become objectives in their own right. So what we have to be prepared to do, if only to prevent it from happening, to deter it, is to make sure that we're, we're ready for conflict in, in urban environments. And we've got a bit of work to do to get ourselves at the sort of level that we need to be. With the British Army participants, we took a long coach journey across parts of the old East Germany to Schnoggersburg in the Altmark. It's home to a remarkable installation, a kind of fake city. When we arrived, it looked like a place that you might see anywhere in the world except with no population in it. There are low concrete buildings and another sector with some high-rise ones, red roofs glinting in the sun on a very windy and hot day, and other places that just look like they could be part of a housing estate, some wide roads, cul-de-sacs, all the normal stuff that you would see in an urban setting. There's a building at the centre of it, which could be a mosque or maybe a church, it's not clear. And behind it is the scrubbed land of the heath, where you can land helicopters, aeroplanes or parachutists. I sweated it out there on a very hot and windy day, and I spoke to General Jakobsen, about to retire after 44 years of service in the German army. He served in the Cold War in the senior ranks, wrote the last general defence plan in 1988, served in Afghanistan and bade goodbye to the Russians when they left the Old East Germany. We are here in Schnergersburg in a totally new facility that is different from urban training areas that we see all over the world. This from the concept, was developed to challenge commander with the realities of an increasingly urbanized world where military operations have to be fought, where military objectives have to be achieved, and at the same time, the needs and demands of the civil population has to be taken into consideration when, when operational plans are made. This Schnergersburg layout is laid out just in that way, starting from the concept of three-block war, of fighting on the one end of the city, carrying at another end, and supporting people in the build-up of government at the other end of the city. It's big enough, it is diverse enough for all these various types of operations that you might be confronted with. It's a large challenge for commanders all over the world, and this is one of the ways to uh, approach a problem in training. There are challenges from public opinion in Germany to what the Bundeswehr does, probably in the wake of, of a deployment, particularly in Afghanistan, that is quite a, still quite a sharp debate in society. I mean, how do you make your case that the German army needs to be prepared for more conflict when a lot of your population 
really want to avoid it. Well, that is part of the layout of this urban area. For a start, this is not a typical German, this is not a typical European, this is not a typical third world village. It has a bit of everything. It has its devastated areas, it's got its ruins on the one side, it's got industrial areas, it's got high-rises, it's got an old town, and you can transfer this into any scenario anywhere in the world. Now, when we started the debate, of course, there were controversial voices saying, is this something that we really want to prepare our soldiers for? And very quickly, the argument turned the other way. Actually, if you don't train your soldiers in an environment like this and don't prepare them for the complexity of a village with population in it, without population in it, with casualties in it, with an insurgent enemy, with a peer enemy, this has obviously consequences for the entire environment and only if your soldiers are trained in a proper way you can avoid collateral damage that actually contradicts everything that you want to achieve. We left Schnorgesburg and after three hours on the German Autobahn returned to the hubbub, the street noise and the sirens of Berlin. Amid them I asked General Sanders what can really be learned from a training site like Schnorgesburg. You've got to prepare soldiers for the sort of terrain that they'll be fighting in. So this business of fighting underground, also the enemy being above you uh, in high-rise buildings, and the rabbit warren, the complexity of, of, of buildings, and how quickly you can become separated. Most of the training areas that we train on are on open farmland. So if you think about places like Salisbury Plain or the prairies of Canada or the desert, none of those things prepare our soldiers properly for the sort of high-rise, really dense city environment that we see around us now. So having training area that you can prepare people in small groups but also in larger sizes is, is really important. And at the moment, we don't have facilities to the same extent that the Germans do. And we're trying to work out how we improve that situation. So I was listening into some of the groups today and there seemed to be sort of divided opinions I would I'd say. Some people were saying, you know, like yourself, if not of your seniority, have combat experience. And some of them were saying, well this is great, you know, I could see I could use this and they always couldn't wait to sort of one of them wanted to jump out of a parachute straight away. I mean, I think he didn't next time he wanted to arrive by air. So some of them were excited. Others said, mm, you know, I, it is spooky. I mean, it has a funny, slightly military toy town feel about it because there's, you know, there's no real population there. And this guy said to me, look, where I was operating the last time, all the problems were sort of dealing with the local council or dealing with, you know, live institutions, which you cannot replicate in a place that, that, that an army builds, uh, however you know, well designed. What do you think about that? I mean, that's true. You, can't, you can never completely replicate the hustle and bustle and all of the different things that go up to make a city system. But you can make a start. So that sort of physical training environment allows your soldiers at least to be really well prepared for that very, very first difficult first day um, that they're going to find in, in a city. Uh, and some of the shock that they're going to experience that they go through. There's also an awful lot you can do, though, with, with simulation. And the Germans made a really strategic decision 10 years ago to, to build a big urban complex to prepare themselves. If we made that similar strategic decision today, I bet that we would probably, we would want to place bets on some emerging technologies that weren't available 10 years ago. And a lot of that is around the synthetic environment. We also, of course, you know, it's never just an army fight. You're operating with 
uh, at least the Air Force, you're probably operating with allies uh, and you're certainly operating with aid organizations, with governments, with the sort of people you were discussing. And so we try to involve them as much as we can in preparing for these sort of conflicts, understanding the dynamics uh, of the urban environment, helping to protect the population and so on. historical background to Schnoggersburg and to the urban bear meeting is that warfare in cities was last seen in Western Europe on a major scale in the battle for Berlin. Hence the meeting there with the German side, poignant as many senior officers had families who fought and died in the Wehrmacht, the armed forces of Nazi Germany. me there, the sounds of Berlin on a busy morning. I've come to the Humboldthain, which is now a, a monument. It's in a small copse of trees on the southern side of Berlin. And in the Second World War, it was one of the main flak towers or air defence points of the city. Good reason for that. From the Humboldthain, you can walk in a small circle up here in the tower and you can see the whole of Berlin laid out at your feet, all those spires and now office blocks and housing and railway lines. It's a perfect position from which to survey what's going on in the city and it was also one of the main defensive points for the defence of the city by the Wehrmacht in the great air battle. I headed underground to a very eerie bunker in the heart of Berlin, one of the most striking vestiges of the intense urban conflict that took place in Western Europe between 1939 and 1945. So you might think, why bring modern armies down here into the bowels of the Third Reich in Berlin, this vast echoing bunker under the Anhalter station? We just heard our guide describing the absolutely miserable conditions and a historian telling us that there are so many suicides here in these bunkers as people sheltered, mainly it must be said, Nazis and their families sheltered from the, the bombs but also some other civilians. They were built from reinforced concrete, just bashing at it there, it was a good two to two and a half metres thick to withstand aerial bombardment. The corridors go on for a good long way underground and hundreds of, of metres to either side of me and then bunkers leading them. It is absolutely extraordinary how deep and how long these bunkers were. And the interesting question, which is relevant to armies today, is how much do you build in preparation for your enemy and how much do you assume that your enemy isn't going to get this far? One of the leading Nazis who refused to sign it off said bunkers are for losers, which as our guide pointed out turned out to be the case. much for the lessons of the past, but how would all of this apply to the kind of bitter scraps that we see armies involved in today? 
Lieutenant General Patrick Sanders fought in the Iraq War and recalls one of the fiercest battles against an insurgency there. In 2007, I was commanding a battle group, about 1,000, 1,200 men or so in Basra. And on our first day of that, what turned out to be a very violent tour, we got caught in a particularly bloody battle. Um, we had two people killed, more than a dozen or so wounded. And in the course of four hours or so, we had about 250 men pinned down in a really difficult urban battle with people firing from roofs, from street corners. People were unable to move. Um, one incredibly brave young bloke who was trying to help move a vehicle that we had stuck ended up winning a conspicuous gallantry cross that's just one down from a VC. I was in my, in my uh, operations centre and I remember seeing some of the young blokes coming back off the ground absolutely shocked by the brutality, the violence, the way that the whole situation unraveled so quickly. And I think I was suffering from a, from a bit of shock as well. Shock in the sense that your enemy can, uh, can catch you on the back foot in the urban environment and you can very quickly lose control of a situation and unravel. So that was a hot, bloody summer in a city and I learned just how brutal and tough and difficult urban warfighting is. And with the benefit of that hindsight, he also told me what this experience had taught him. You learn a number of things. These are quite eternal lessons from history. But you learn, first of all, that you never have enough troops in an urban environment and that troops get very easily swallowed up in the small rabbit warrens of, of streets in high-rise blocks, that the enemy can reduce some of the technological advantages that Western armies enjoy, that you can become separated and dispersed very quickly, that staying in command, staying in control of groups of soldiers in that environment is really difficult. And you also learn that protecting your forces relies on having some equipment that's really important. Funnily enough, and counterintuitively, armoured vehicles, tanks in particular, but also infantry fighting vehicles, so armoured personnel carriers and so on, are incredibly useful. It's, it's a lesson that the Israelis have learnt more recently in Beirut. But you also have to think in three dimensions, and increasingly in, in, in four dimensions, if you like. And by that I mean information rather than time. So being able to maintain your awareness of what's going on around you, and also understand that the enemy will be using unmanned aerial vehicles, drones, uh, against you. That becomes important. But you also have to uh, exploit the information environment, the media, if you like, to get inside the minds of the people in the city, the civilians or the enemy as well. It's not just the place, though, that determines the way that battles change. It's what's happening in technology, too. Unmanned aerial vehicles, otherwise known as drones, are being used with increasing frequency. Jars Malik commands the British Army's joint ground-based air defence organisation. In the Russia conflict against Ukraine, and particularly in the autumn of 2014, we saw the Russians using an awful lot of just massed artillery systems, so not just guns, but also surface-to-surface -surface rocket launchers. And these were queued, so the observers, there were just as many drones, in fact more drones, than there were people. And they were using 
very unsophisticated ones, so medium size, flowing at medium level, relatively cheap. So if they happened to lose one or two, it didn't matter that much because they could just fly another one out. But what it did is it allowed them to develop what's called a relatively rapid targeting cycle. So just fly these things around and around. They observed, in this particular case, a Ukrainian brigade and just queued up a whole bunch of massed artillery with absolutely no risk to their own forces' life. And it caused extreme damage within about a 15-minute cycle from observation to death of the people on the ground. And so you can actually, you don't have to have exquisite technology in the drones. You can actually buy a whole bunch of cheaper ones and just have lots and lots of them to give you that redundancy. But the tech often doesn't work as well as we might think. Signals get easily lost in buildings. Enemy forces can find ways of neutering drone technology and wiping out the power of any system. And drones are also very hard to target without risking collateral damage. Sir Anthony Beaver was listening to this conversation and it struck me how this grand historian of the military must see it from a very different perspective. I asked him what the nearest avatar might be in history to the challenges we see drones on the battlefield posing us now. I think the nearest uh, comparison is the invention of the balloon or the use of the balloon for the first time in a military environment when observers were able to look down and see beyond into the rear of the enemy. And then UK had aircraft and so forth and all of this made a huge difference on the planning of attacks. If it all sounds a bit like boys' war games, well, the army is changing. And Brigadier Sharon Naismith has witnessed how technology has changed warfare in practice. Particularly from my perspective, I think the big change is about the amount of information that we are able to provide commanders and provide commanders at every level. And on the one hand, that is hugely empowering in terms of the understand and the ability to have an effect. But of course, it's hugely challenging to the complexity that brings the reliance on that technology, particularly in an environment which is going to be very fast-moving and very challenging. And, of course, some of that technology can then be denied. She's the most senior woman in the British Army, and she recently commanded over 5,000 frontline combat troops. So she's seen massive changes in the role that women can play in conflict. In my lifetime, which is about 26 plus years, I mean, it is a significantly different environment to join. You know, when I joined, I was very fortunate that at the time I was joining was the first opportunity for women to be what we would call cat badged, but it means I was dedicated to a functional role and my career, my profession was about that dedicated role that I was to do. So for me, that was communications. And in terms of inclusivity, it was, it was very different. So I was treated very differently from the moment that I was commissioning from Sandhurst, joining my first unit, the understand of what that meant to how I would balance it with family life. So if I can illustrate that. So when I commissioned, all the women were stood at the back of the parade. I joined my first unit and it was very much of the culture within the officer's mess that women sort of were treated in a different way. And of course, I signed a piece of paper that would have said if I decided to have a family, that that meant that I had to end my career. And at the time, that didn't seem completely countercultural, whereas, of course, now there would be an allergic reaction to it. That very quickly changed. And of course, I would now say I've had a career which is completely comparable with my male contemporaries and have done it as a married mum of two. So, you know, just to illustrate the scale of change. Brigadier Naismith. And this newly diverse army, who is it preparing to fight? Politicians tend to mince words about that. Armies tend not to, at least when they're doing their exercises, looking into what might lie ahead. 
that it was pretty clear that the real peer enemy being considered here is Russia. In military jargon, a peer enemy is one as good or nearly as good as you, and an awful lot of the strategizing and talk about capability was taking Russia or Russian-inspired forces to be just that. One figure who dropped in on our deliberations comes from American military intelligence. He's stationed in Germany, but we're not able to give you his name. So, what did he think about the emerging military strength of Russia? Russia has been doing a lot of terms of modernization to catch up with the collapse of their military following the Soviet Union and the systemic failures that were exposed in the 2008 conflict with Georgia. As one colleague of mine quoted, they simply won because they got there fastest with the mostest, not because of good doctrine and good equipment. So, in the past, especially eight years, they have come a long way in narrowing the capability gaps they've had with most NATO member countries, and in being able to do a combined arms. Uh, campaign in Europe, in the North Caucasus, or potentially Central Asia as well.、And、to what extent are we trying to make up in short order for failing to understand the world after the fall of the Berlin Wall? I mean, we're here in Berlin; it's not very far away. Is it just down a couple of hundred meters away from where we're talking? And did we misunderstand the peace dividend?、Uh, that's a loaded political question. I'm not sure I'm the right person to ask. I think.、Uh, From the Russian perspective, I'm not saying necessarily agree with it. They believe that the West has treated them unfairly when they were in a position of weakness following the collapse of the USSR. We took advantage of them. We pushed NATO's borders east. Again, nothing that I personally agree with. But looking at it from their perspective, the the important thing for the West and the new order is to understand that Russia is now in a position to assert itself in a way that it hadn't been prior to 2008. Be it with military force in in the Donbas or the long-range precision munitions that they've demonstrated in Syria, which have a a great strategic message,、uh, maybe not so much of a tactical application. So, just understanding that Russia has、uh, maybe not an equal vote in the international arena outside of the former Soviet states, but definitely their prominence is rising, and that's what they're trying to do: is be a world player. You'll frequently hear the Russians say it should be a multipolar world, not the unipolar world they believe is under the U.S. Was that just an American view? Well, not so much. I put it to General Jakobson. Do you feel that you're in a form of conflict with Russia? If you look at what's happening in the world today, and you're looking at strategic communication, we are in conflict, very clearly, and we see it in the Baltic states. When you look into the cyber world, which is an element in modern combat, we are in conflict, and some countries have been attacked, as we all know. And Britain, in particular, has come across some very unpleasant events just very lately. When it comes to questions of attempts to divert NATO allies and to drive wedges into the alliance, yes, we are in conflict. So we do see that there are attempts that we have to stand against together, and that's what we're doing. Soldiers have to prepare for the worst. We are the insurance policy. The last ones who want to go into all-out conflict against a peer enemy is us, but we have to be prepared. And General Sanders. I don't think it's any secret that we worry about Russia. We certainly don't want to find ourselves at war with Russia. I mean, God forbid. But when we think about threat, we think about a combination of, of capability and then intent—the will to use military force. And whether we like it or not, the Russians have shown both capability, so they've invested massively in their armed forces, and the will to use them. Whether that is in Georgia, whether it's in Chechnya, whether it's in Ukraine, whether it's in Syria, they're using 
violence and their armed forces as a means of, of, of a foreign policy of extending their power. Now, we would do everything we can to avoid conflict with Russia or any other enemy. But the best way you can do that is you know, to have the resolve, but also to have the capabilities so that you can back up your obligations to your allies. So preparing for, for conflict with Russia is probably the best way of making sure that it doesn't happen. It certainly puts the dry deliberations of those NATO summits into some context, all of this. From World War II through the Cold War to Iraq, Afghanistan and beyond, the future of war is always changing and never more so than now. But we want to hear from you too about what future war will look like and how we might best avoid it. Is Russia really the most likely enemy? Head to economist.com slash openfuture and join our debate. You can also email us radio at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And if you'd like to subscribe, please do go to economist.com slash radio offer 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Anne McElvoy in Berlin. This is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.